Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's, uh, I've, I've suffered quite a lot of anxiety in uh, coming to this last sermon uh, because a couple of weeks ago I had my throwaway line about wearing board shorts and you know pastel-coloured flowery shorts uh, in spite of uh, Phil just because he calls them my pyjama pants. And uh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I've received a lot of messages demanding that I do it. I couldn't do it for three reasons. One is I respect Phil much too much uh, to do it. Uh, Secondly, you do not want to look at my lady legs uh, while I preach. They're very crooked and they're not very flattering. Uh, And three, this is the Word of God. And uh, it's an important thing we do as we open God's Word. But considering how many death threats I received via text message about how I must wear my shorts, I've, uh, I've worn them underneath. Okay? And I regretted that instantly because it's very uncomfortable. But just for those who feel like I made a promise three weeks ago, not a joke, I've got them on, so we're all good. But on to more important things, let me, uh, let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for the great privilege it is to have your word. Uh, we thank you that you are the God who speaks and you've spoken to us and revealed yourself to us so that we might know you and how to live for you. And we pray this morning that indeed we might hear you clearly to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, it really is a a great chapter to have as a last sermon. It wasn't planned this way, so Phil and I didn't sit down, you know, a few weeks ago and think, oh, what would be a good last sermon? Uh, It's just how it worked out. It could have been Ananias and Sapphira, which would have made for a very interesting last sermon. But uh, this is such a great last sermon because of two incredible things. For one, this is what it's all about in the end, isn't it? See, if you just strip back the layers and the riches of Scripture, what do you see? You see a God who's mighty to save. You see our God who's gracious and merciful to save. And you see sinful people who are desperately in need of saving. And in this chapter, what we see is the work of a gracious God who softens the hard heart, who humbles the proud sinner, and who saves a person for the sake of his glory. Uh, and whilst parts of what we'll see with Saul is very unique, there's as much as very unique about Saul, the reality is every follower of Jesus had God soften their hearts, had God humble their proud sin, and had God save them for the sake of God's glory, not our own. So that's the first incredible thing about this chapter. But the second incredible thing is God's choosing of Saul. It's remarkable. You see, Saul becomes, humanly speaking, one of the most prominent figures of all of history. Uh, This Saul, as most of you will know, is the Apostle Paul. So uh, Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul, his Greek name. It's the same person. Humanly speaking, he's one of the most prominent figures of all time. He just is. It's just fact. But even more so, spiritually speaking, Saul is God's instrument for the message about Jesus. If you open up the content page of your Bible and look under the New Testament, you'll see that almost half of all the New Testament was written by Paul. God uses Paul to write so much of the Word. God uses the Apostle Paul to reveal so much of himself to us. And in this chapter, we're we're introduced to him, uh, and he's saved and he's commissioned So they're the two things I want us to see in this chapter. It's a hugely significant chapter. We see just how mighty God is to save, and we see how God chooses Saul, who is the Apostle Paul. So we're going to jump straight in because there's lots to cover. And as we start, I just want us to remember just how 
uh, how far, how much we know so far about Saul. And this is point one in your outline, Saul before. Because to put it bluntly, Saul, he was a nasty piece of work. We know this chapter so well, we, most of us here have heard the story before. Just imagine we don't know what's going to happen. What do you know about Saul so far? He's a nasty piece of work. Uh, do you remember chapter 7? As the young men were there stoning Stephen to death, do you remember who the young men were laying their coats at the feet of? It was Saul. They lay them at Saul's feet. And it's a real horrible image because why did they take their coats off? They took their coats off so it would make it easier for them to throw their stones. And they took their coats off because as they threw their stones at Stephen, they didn't want to get blood on their coats. That, that's the sort of horrible image that, that we're to see as they lay down their coats. And they lay them down at Saul, who was their leader, who was leading in the death of Stephen. And worse still, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 3, just flick back a page, chapter 8, verse 3, it's Saul there who's the chief persecutor of the church of Jesus. So he was ravaging the church. He would go house after house in Jerusalem, showing no mercy whatsoever. He didn't matter if it was a man or a woman, probably even a child as well. Saul didn't care if they confessed or belonged to the way of Jesus. Saul would, would arrest them. He'd take them out of their homes and put them in prison. He was obsessed. He was driven. He was devout. And as we get to chapter 9, Saul was so obsessed that he now turns to the surrounding cities. Jerusalem, he's done. He's picked everyone out. Persecution has been heavy there. He's moving on to another city. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus he went to the high priest and requested letters for him to the synagogues in Damascus. Why? So that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, the way of Jesus, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And we need to understand our geography here as well. Jerusalem, Damascus, it was 240 kilometers away. There weren't cars. For Saul to go to Damascus, it was about a week's worth of travel, probably walking. But that's how driven Saul was. He was so devout in his killing of the cause of the way of Jesus and the cause of Jesus that he went all the way to, to Damascus. And it's really important that we grasp just how nasty a piece of work Saul is. He's wicked. Don't, don't miss that as you read this at this point. Don't, don't think of the Apostle Paul and all that he does. This is Saul. He's a nasty piece of work. He hated Jesus. He hated Jesus' followers literally to their deaths. He hated them. And that's what makes what happens next just so incredible. So look in verse 3. Verse 3. As he, Saul, traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting. And just as a quick aside, it's, it's a great comfort to see here just how Jesus unites with his, with his uh, suffering people. And do you notice that? Saul, Saul here, he's on his way to arrest the followers of Jesus. And yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because to, to persecute Jesus' people is to persecute Jesus. He's united with them. But the first thing we've got to realize here is that this event was real. 
It's, it's physical. It's supernatural. It's not, it's not some dream that Saul had. It's not some vision he sees and he falls into a trance. No, a light literally flashed around Saul. And he heard clearly a voice. It was a real event. The whole thing was so real and so tangible that Saul physically fell to the ground. That's how overcome he was by the physical event. And what an appropriate position for Saul to be brought to. Just imagine, he's there, he's low, he's humbled, he's on the ground as Jesus is speaking to him. And I really want us to slow down at this point and put ourselves in the shoes of Saul. See, just, just imagine how Saul would have felt, given all that he's done, given what his life was, was about at that point. Just, just, just imagine how he would have felt as he heard the words that came, Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I remember when I was in that early high school, my mum and my sister and I had just come back from uh, lunch at Rockdale Plaza. I think the plaza was pretty new at that point. And uh, as I got home, I had that, um, that deep sinking feeling. I was in early high school. I had that deep, that, that deep sinking feeling when I remembered that I'd left my retainer, my plate for my teeth, uh, on my lunch tray back at, the, uh, back at Rockdale Plaza. And I hadn't had this retainer for long. Uh, we were by no means a wealthy family. Uh, I think the retainer cost my parents about $400. That's a lot of money for us. It was a huge amount of money for us, a big cost. And when I was at home, I stood there recalling, hold on, I wrapped up my plate and I wrapped it up in a napkin and I put it on my lunch tray and then after lunch I went to the bin and emptied my whole lunch tray into the bin and as I recalled that my gut just sunk and uh, there was all sorts of not so choice words that came out of my mouth um, my mum and my sister just looked at me as I was basically swearing my head off I wasn't a Christian yet but I was saying all sorts of not helpful words and I couldn't understand why do you remember that where's my mum do you remember that or not Maybe, not quite. No, good, good, good. Uh, I was literally there just swearing my head off and uh, uh, horrified at what I'd done because I knew what it would cost my family. I knew how expensive this thing was. I knew how much trouble I'd get in when my dad got home. Somewhat disgustingly, we drove back to Rockdale Plaza. I went digging in the, the center bin in the food court to find it, and somehow I found it, which was pretty amazing. I cleaned it twice a day, every day for a week before I dared stick it back in my mouth. It was pretty gross. But, but you, know that, you know that sinking feeling you get? Like you feel it in your gut that just, uh, I made a mistake. So something dawns on you and, and you realize I've, I've got it wrong. Just imagine Saul. Just imagine it. The words. He's there, he's on the ground. I am Jesus. The one you're persecuting. Who are you, Lord? I, I am Jesus. The one you hate so much. I'm the Lord and King of Stephen, who you, who you stoned to death. So you imagine, Saul, you cannot get a greater sinking feeling than that, than realizing that Jesus is King, and He is Lord, and He does reign, and He is Master, and you've been rebelling against Him. You see, it's a sad reality that millions on the day of Jesus' return will have that sinking feeling. On that day, they will realize, I got it wrong. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He's the one and only God. And I rejected him. You see, don't let that be you. If you are here and you know in your heart 
or don't know in your heart yet that Jesus is Lord and King, change if he's not your Lord and King. Turn to him. Because when Jesus comes back, it will be too late. You see, it's an incredible grace and mercy of God that he would save Saul. That he would give Saul the time to change, to repent, to pray, to turn to Jesus. See, if you ever want an example of how salvation has nothing to do with you or me or what we do, our good deeds, our good works, our good intentions, our good reputation, forget all that. Look at Saul. It's got nothing to do with us. Humanly speaking, he was the least deserving of Jesus' mercy. He went from house to house, town to town, looking at face after face. And imagine that the face of the people as they opened the door and they saw Saul. The fear in their face they would have had when they saw Saul, thinking, he's going to arrest me. He's going to take my family. And Saul had no mercy on them. He arrested them. And yet Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. And God was pleased to save him. You see, part of what we learn at this point is that if Jesus can save and spare Saul, he can save anyone in this room. He can save your hardened father, your hardened mother, or your sister, or your brother, or your, your friend who mocks, or the co-worker that, that rolls their eyes every time you know, they, they mention a Christian. The devout atheist, God can save them all. So here's how uh, J.C. Ryle puts it. I had to quote J.C. Ryle one last time. Here's how he puts it. He says, There is nothing in Scripture, nothing in God, nothing in man's condition which, which warrants anyone in saying, I can never be converted. There lives not the man or woman on earth of whom it could be said their conversion is an impossibility. Anyone, however sinful and hardened, anyone may be converted. And how? Why? Well, Ryle continues, he says, Conversion is a possible thing, Because of the almighty power of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is easy to him to create new hearts out of nothing as it was to create the world out of nothing. It's as easy to him to breathe spiritual life into a stony dead heart as it was to breathe natural life into the clay which Adam was formed. You see, our God is mighty to save even a wretch like Saul. Even to humble the hardest of hearts like Saul. And don't we see Saul humbled at this point? See, look at verse 8. Verse 8. So after Jesus had spoken to Saul, then Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand, led him into Damascus, and he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. It's a massive contrast. Saul, Saul would have come towards Jerusalem with his chest out and puffed up ready to do his thing, seeing so clearly, eyes fixed against Jesus, and then being humbled, now he was blind. Now he was led by the hand like a, like a child, not eating, not drinking, for three days. See, that's, that's the, the shame of his sin. And such is how the Lord Jesus brought him low. And if you have a quick look at verse 11, we're told in verse 11 that for those three days, Saul was praying. And you can only guess what he prayed. You know, I suspect he, he prayed, Jesus, forgive me. I was so wrong. Have mercy upon me. Forgive me for my own self-righteousness, thinking that I knew best. Perhaps he prayed for those followers of Jesus who now sat in prison because of him. And in Saul's day, if you sat in prison, there's a good chance you would die in prison. 
Perhaps he prayed for them. Perhaps he prayed for Stephen's family. We don't know for sure. But Saul was humbled and he was changed by Jesus. And what happens next is that we meet another man who too was changed differently to Saul, but nonetheless, he was changed by Jesus. And we're up to point three now, Saul received. And uh, as you heard it read out, Ananias here, if the name sounds familiar, it's because we've uh, heard about Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter five. Not the same Ananias for obvious reasons. If you go back and read chapter five, you might remember why it's not the same Ananias, not the same person. But... uh, what Ananias does here is he receives Saul uh, eventually. So if you have a look at verse 10, look at verse 10. The Lord calls out to Ananias in a vision and he says to him, verse 11, he says, Get up and go to the street called Straight, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And just a quick side point, if you look up on the screen, uh, there's a picture of Straight Street, Damascus. Keep remembering the Bible, real people, real places, real events. You can still go to these places today. So that's uh, Straight Street there in in Syria, in Damascus. Uh, But Jesus tells Ananias to go to Saul. And if you have a look at verse 13, Ananias was reluctant. And fair enough, when you think about it, just just imagine if you were Ananias, right? Remember what Saul was like. Uh, Ananias would have thought and and said to Jesus, hold on, haven't you heard Jesus? This Saul guy, he's coming to arrest me. And, and he's come here to hurt me, and he's come here to hurt my family, and he's come here to, to arrest my fellow believers in Christ. Surely, Jesus, you mean flee from him, not go to him. But look at what Jesus says in verse 15. And this is a very significant verse for a couple of reasons. So make sure you look at it. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for this man Saul is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and the Israelites, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And at this point, this is the commissioning and the appointing of Saul the Apostle. And Luke, Luke's recorded this for us. God's caused this to be written for us. This is recorded with all the detail that's given to us so that we might know that Jesus has chosen this man, Saul, to be an apostle. To be Paul the Apostle. And yes, an apostle to Israel, but especially to the Gentiles, uh, to the non-Jews. And if you read on in the rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament with all the letters that Paul wrote, what is crystal clear is that Jesus sent the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles so that the nations might hear about Jesus. And if we know anything about Paul as he goes to to share the message of Jesus to, to the Roman Empire of that day, we know that he suffers greatly for that. He suffers for the name of Jesus. And we really must praise God that he did. And praise God that God sustained Saul, sustained Paul, and that Jesus sent him. Because if he didn't, none of us would be here. Almost all of us here are Gentiles by birth. And the reason we're here is because God chose Saul. Because Jesus revealed himself to him. We really should praise God for that. But the other reason why this verse is significant is because Jesus puts Ananias straight. And uh, you can almost imagine Jesus saying to Ananias, "Uh, I'm the son of God. Yes, I know who Saul is. Uh, I, I know that he's come here to arrest you, but don't worry. 
I've got this. I've humbled him. I've changed him. So get on with it. Go to him. And again, it's, it's significant that Ananias does indeed go because look at what happens next in verse 17 and 18. Ananias goes to Saul and then Saul hears from Ananias and he regains his sight and then he's filled by the Holy Spirit and then he's baptized and I assume Ananias was the one to baptize Saul. We're not told, but I assume it's Ananias. And in that point there, through that whole series of events, Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. And what I particularly love is what Ananias says when he first gets to Saul. See, look at what Ananias calls Saul when he first gets to him in verse 17. Look what he says. He calls him Brother Saul. And that's just, just, that's just incredible, isn't it? Just imagine the emotional reception. See, I can imagine Saul at that point. He, he's just spent three days praying, thinking, reflecting on all the evil he's done on how much he deserves to be smited by God for how he's behaved. And then Ananias comes in and he says, Brother Saul. I can imagine Saul just bawling his eyes out. I can imagine Saul saying, I came here to hurt you. I came here to arrest you, Ananias, to take your family, to take your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and you call me brother? It's incredible, isn't it? But that's the gospel. That's what Jesus does to people. That's, that's what Jesus should do to all of us. You see, sometimes I wonder if we can be a bit too much like the, the reluctant Ananias. You know how sometimes uh, Christians say of other people, uh, they, they, they know a really nice person, they go, oh, they'd make a great Christian. They're really lovely. Wouldn't they make a great Christian? Maybe I should make more of an effort to have them over for dinner and invite them to church. And that's good. Invite them to church, have them over. But do you know how sometimes we can say that as Christians? But if God can save a wretch like Saul, he can save anyone. And the Christian is to receive any who call upon the name of Jesus. I wonder if our churches in Sydney need to be filled much more with forgiven criminals than they currently are. Uh, our churches should be filled much more with recovering addicts, with people who aren't you know, seemingly well-to-do. Because that's the gospel, isn't it? To the wretched Saul, Ananias calls Brother Saul. Ananias calls him brother. That's the gospel. You see, Saul was humbled, but Ananias was changed. And Ananias at that point, he saw the extent of the mercy and grace of God that it knows no bounds, that God's pleased to save even those like Saul. But very briefly on to point four, and, I'll, and then I'll, I'll wrap things up after that. But point four is Saul transformed. And we, uh, we can't look at this uh, with much detail, verses 20 to 31. But it's worth just noting how, how much Saul is transformed. He goes from being the persecutor of Jesus to the preacher of Jesus. So verse 19, look at verse 19. Immediately, Saul began proclaiming Jesus in the Jewish synagogues. And verse 22, he confounded the Jews. And then, and then you really see God's sovereign choice in Saul because who better to confound the Jews than such a well-trained Jew than Saul? You see, Saul, Saul had, had studied so well. He was a mentee uh, under the great rabbi Gamaliel. He, he knew his Old Testament so well. And it would have been an amazing experience for Saul as the Old Testament came alive when he became a Christian when he realized just how much of the Old Testament, all of it pointed to Jesus. 
Uh, which is why, if you have a look at verse 22, he was so good at proving that, that Jesus is that Old Testament Messiah, that he's the Christ. But Saul, the persecutor, also becomes the persecuted. And there's this real lovely irony here. Look at verse 29. Because in verse 29, Saul was conversing and debating with the, the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, so they were basically the Greek Jews, the God-fearers. And, uh, and as he was, what did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. And if you remember, who's the last person in Acts to debate and converse with the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem? It was Stephen. And what did they do to Stephen? They killed him. And who was the one authorizing his killing? It was Saul. So this is, there's this lovely irony here that now Saul is debating with the Hellenistic Jews about Jesus in Jerusalem, uh, even though he was the one that killed Stephen for it. It's a sad irony, but a lovely one. But that's all to say that Saul, in being humbled before Jesus and turning to Jesus, was radically transformed, which is what should happen to every believer of Jesus. But let me uh, wrap things up. What do we learn? And uh, some final words mixed in. You see, I wonder if the grace and mercy of God we see in this chapter can make us feel just a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, what do I mean by that? You see, Saul, he was such a nasty piece of work. Uh, we're too familiar with this chapter that we just forget how evil Saul was. Just to make it real for us, imagine Saul came to our church in that day. Imagine Saul came here to raid us. Imagine Saul arrested someone from your gospel team. That, you know, they weren't there this week at gospel team because they'd been arrested by Saul. Imagine that Saul had come to your house but it just happened to be that you weren't there that day and so your family was spared. So imagine people sat in prison from our church because of Saul. How much would you hate on him because of that? And yet God chooses to save Saul. God chooses to have mercy on him and forgive him and reveal Jesus to him. And if we're honest, part of our initial gut reaction to thinking those sorts of things is to think that's not fair. Why would, why would God save Saul? If he did that to us, why would he save Saul? That's the question we'd be asking. Saul doesn't anywhere near deserve to be saved. Our gut reaction is to feel an injustice that God would save a Saul, a wretch like him. And there's two things we need to learn from that sort of reaction. The first is that we ourselves are absolute wretches. See, that's the truth. We are wretches just like Saul. See, part of the problem is we think, of course it makes sense that God would save someone like me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I, I get why God would save me. I know I sin. I don't, I don't deserve it. But it makes sense, right? I, I get it. I, I don't see an injustice. I'm not that bad. But no. The Bible's really clear. All of us are absolute wretches like Saul. And we're undeserving like Saul. And we're as fallen as Saul. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and Philip Jensen was interviewed. If you don't know who Philip is, most of you would, but if you don't know, uh, he's someone that God's used just powerfully uh, around Sydney for the cause of the gospel. But uh, Philip's in his late 70s and he was interviewed and uh, he just got asked, you know, what, what is the thing that he struggles with the most in his older age? And he just said that the older he gets, the more he realizes what a wretched man he is. That, that the older he gets, the greater a sinner he realizes he is. 
And it wasn't just some kind of well-meaning, well-prepared theological answer that he was giving. You could tell he meant it. You could tell the emotion he had as he reflected on himself and his sin. The older he grew, the more he grew in his knowledge of God, the darker his sin became. And whilst that scares me a little, because I already know my sin so well, and I'm nowhere near 70 yet, what Philip said is true. The more I grow as a Christian the more I realize just what a wretch I am. And I know these are not the prettiest of final words, but brothers and sisters, do not forget your sin. Do not forget it. Do not forget that we, just like Saul, are that undeserving of the grace and mercy of God. Before the Lord Jesus brought us to himself, all of us were just like Saul. We were obsessed We were driven, we were devout rebels of God. So maybe maybe today, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, spend some time just remembering how undeserving we all are of God's grace. That it doesn't make sense that God would save someone like you or someone like me, a wretch like you, a wretch like me. Because it's only as we understand just how great our sin is then we understand how mighty God is to save. And how great he is. Uh, John Newton, who uh, himself was a great wretch, he was a slave trader before he became a Christian. If you don't know who he is, he wrote the, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Some of you would have heard this, but in his, in his old age, again, a bit like Philip in a sense, in his old age he said this. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. Uh, please remember that. Those two things go hand in hand. We are great sinners like Saul, and we have a great saviour. Anyone, even you, even me, can be saved. And as we realise this, there are two incredible things that happen. One is we become like Ananias. We, we welcome and we receive all sorts of wretched sinners just like us, and we don't, we don't unfairly judge one another. Uh, because we know together we're all saved, sinners before God. And so we help one another. In our struggle with sin, we help and pray for each other and we speak the word of God to one another. You see, this thing here that we've got, this thing here, the church of God, it's so wonderful. So, so we, we help each other because we know we're all the same. We know we all struggle. We call each other brothers and sisters. But the second incredible thing is that if we realize this truth, then we're transformed. See, the Apostle Paul was so effective in the purposes of God because he never forgot what a great sinner he was and how mighty a great saviour Jesus is. And that changed him, that transformed him, and that transforms us. You see, Jesus softened your hard heart, he humbled your proud sin, and he saved you. And that's a miracle that he did that for you, for me. What a mighty work of God. So let that truth occupy your mind every minute, every hour, every day for the rest of your life and never forget it. Never leave it. And God will continue to transform you. Well, let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what we read in Acts chapter 9. We learn so many things that you're pleased to save wretches like Saul and wretches like us who are so undeserving. Uh, Father, we thank you for how mighty you are to save Help us never to forget that. But we also thank you that we see in this chapter just your great salvation plan, that you appoint and commission the Apostle Paul 
so that we might indeed hear about Jesus. And we thank you that you're always at work to grow your church to the praise of your glory. And in this, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.